0: blob talk radio <laughs>
1: everybody, and welcome to this episode of Trendlebed Tales. And this is one that I am very excited about because we're going to find out more about one of the places that is an Iowa connection, the Iowa Blind and Sight-Saving School in Vinton, Iowa. And so I can't wait till we get started, but first we do have just a little bit of housekeeping And I wanted to remind everybody that if uh, you haven't listened to them yet, I have two roving reports up from my trip this last weekend to Laura Days in Pepin, Wisconsin, and I'm going to be doing one more short little thing, even though I'm home now, to talk about my stop in Spring Valley on the way home. And... Also keep a look out for more episodes coming up. I haven't gotten the date set, but I've got a really interesting travel times uh, set up for next month and also we're going to have two interview shows next month. Um and uh I'm really both they're both going to be exciting topics and I can't wait. So keep an eye on the page on the website or on the blog or the Facebook feed to let you know when upcoming episodes are going to be. And, as a reminder, that if you should want to call in and ask a question or make a comment, you can do that at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll-free, 877 633 9389 That's one 633 9389 And you can also use that number if you just want to listen through your phone instead of streaming it. Uh, so if you're ever out and about when we've got a live episode going on, you can always call in and listen that way. The chat room is open, so if you want to make a comment without talking on the air, you can sure do that too. And um, I think... That's that's about what we need to, to talk about, except I did want to mention this is Wilder Days down in Mansfield, Missouri, so we're sending them lots of good thoughts today. And it looks like from the pictures that I've seen on uh, the Facebook feed that it's being a really great event, so I'm glad that uh, things are going well in Mansfield after they got rained out last year. But that's about it for housekeeping, so... So let's go ahead and bring on our guest, Robert Spangler of the Iowa uh, School for the Blind and, and Sight Saving School. And um, Robert, tell us a little about yourself.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Um, well, I'm a graduate of the Iowa and Sight Saving School. Um, attended school there from 1972-73 school year till uh, 1982, and I graduated. Um, after that, I've been interested in the school's history and um do web pages and just really enjoy doing tours at the school also.
1: Well, I am very impressed with your web page, and if no one has looked for the or looked at that website yet and is interested at all in uh, the School for the Blind and what it was like, I highly recommend it. I I just was totally impressed. Did you want to give the address for it or tell people the best way they can find it?
0: Well, I've got a lot of uh, keywords up there, you know, most of them, uh, the school's names. Um, The address is uh, IBSSSalumni.org. Okay, so everybody
1: be sure to check that out. Okay, so uh, let's go back to the beginning of the story. Uh, How was the Iowa School for the Blind founded?
0: Well, we can thank some people in Keokuk, Iowa for that. Um, They had a visit from Samuel Bacon, who was a blind teacher. Samuel... Was a big part of founding the Illinois School for the Blind at Jacksonville in 1849. And he visited friends in Keokuk, and uh, some people there knew that he had started a school. So they uh, persuaded him to start a school in Iowa. And this was in 1852. The Keokuk's uh, little house. He had four students, and with the efforts of those four students and some local politicians, the subject was taken to the state legislature, and the school was adopted. That school was adopted and moved to Iowa City and opened in April 1853 as the Asylum for the Blind of Iowa.
1: Which I think makes it the second oldest school in the state of Iowa, doesn't it?
0: Yes, it's the second educational, oldest educational institution in Iowa, yes.
1: Yep. Uh, After the University of Iowa. Go Hawks! Okay. That's right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, it's there in Iowa City, which for you out-of-staters was then the territorial capital, and they were building the gorgeous old capital building that you can now visit as uh, a museum, and... They were there right in the heart of the action. How did it come to be moved to Vinton?
0: Well, as the blind learned about the school, and remember, this wasn't young kids. This was people who were 10, 12 years old up to adults into their 60s and 70s. They learned about the school and came so that they could learn a trade, be educated, Um, more what the kids of the seeing schools were getting. But the population grew, and while they were in Iowa City, they they kept moving from smaller buildings to bigger. Finally, the trustees told the um, governor, we need a permanent location for the school. Well, at the time, Governor Grimes... His suggestion was to let's just send our blind out of state to be educated. <laughs> well that, that didn't go over no. very well. No. <laughs> so um they offered to any community in the state of Iowa that could come up with five thousand dollars and forty acres of land, the opportunity to be the permanent home for the school. And at the same time, because the name Asylum wasn't uh, very appropriate, they changed the name of the school to the Iowa Institution for the Instruction of the Blind. Um, Vinton met the requirements, and through the efforts of Thomas Drummond, the local publisher of the Vinton Eagle, and businessmen of the area, our beautiful campus was donated by uh, W.O. Webb, who was a local mill owner. Um, (laughs) So that's how it got to be to Vinton, $5,000 and 40 acres of land. And it it, it just, you know, the campus is still very, very much the same as what it was. It's still the 40 acres and looks minus a lot of trees, but other than that, it's still... Still a good campus. I'm not sure how many other communities were in the running because I haven't found that
1: information yet, but we're just glad that Vinton got it. Okay, so um, when they moved to Vinton, there were a lot of other uh, towns trying to get different things from the legislature, so it was a pretty big deal that Vinton got the blind school, wasn't it?
0: Yes, it was. See, and at the time, we did not have railroad. Venton, there a lot of proposals, but Venton didn't have no railroad yet. Um, the, the businesses of Venton weren't all that many compared to once the school got here, so they, they knew it was going to be a big opportunity for this area.
1: And uh, for those of you who don't know where Vinton is, it's 17 miles from Cedar Rapids, Cedar Rapids, home of Quaker Oats, so most people have sort of heard of that. Um, It's uh, a little ways off the uh, Lincoln Highway, and it's just a very pretty little town, and it's just such a gorgeous campus, even with the trees stripped from the wind damage, um, a couple years ago, I mean, I am just very impressed whenever I see their campus, and especially the tunnels because I just love tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so let's so let's talk about the campus. Are there any of the original buildings left?
0: Well, the, okay, the original building, which was the current main building, um, that's the only original building. It's a hundred and. 40 years old. Construction began on that in 1858. They completed the center section in 1862, and that's when classes began in in the Vinton campus was in 1862. Um, Many of the other buildings were stables, uh, wood sheds, um, and and the first one, first building was heated by wood stoves, so... (laughs) There was a lot of changes after that because they didn't like the fire issues there. But um, the rest of them were pretty much gone even by the time Mary got there. um, The buildings have changed so much in just that short a time. But the main building, our main building is the only original building left on campus.
1: Okay, well... What was the campus like when Mary Ingalls arrived there?
0: um, Lots of trees. (laughs) That's one thing that the trustees and the um, superintendents made sure of. that there were lots of trees. They had a main building by this time had a south wing added, which was in 1869, because the population kept growing. And then in 1873, they ordered added the North Wing. And at that time, but one, one I think is an important part of our history is that our school had a very good connection to the Civil War. We had a uh, Civil War general James L. Geddes was our superintendent for two years. So (laughs) that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'm sure anybody who goes to Ames, to the uh, State University out there, knows S.A. Knapp. He was our superintendent here from 1869 to 1873. So almost four years he was there. But um, when... At the time when Mary came, um, just shortly before she came in 1877, um, we had a new teacher came. um, That was Thomas F. McCune. He was assistant superintendent. And Robert Carruthers was the superintendent at that time. And when Mary and her parents came to the school, we're not sure exactly what route they would have came in on because South Dakota was served by the Milwaukee Road and the Great Northern, which was north of us through Waterloo with the Great Northern, and Milwaukee was uh, through the center part of Benton County. But It had a lot of connections with uh, the Rock Island, which ran through Benton, well, at that time was the Burlington, Cedar Rapids, and Northern Railroad. Road. Um, but they would have seen much the same that we do today, with this very few changes as far as the main building itself goes. Um, really, really beautiful campus. Um, they would have had several outbuildings that housed the shops, the broom shops, because the school was very, very much a educational facility and a trades educational facility. Um, but by the time Mary came, they were only accepting students into the educational program from seven years of age to 21. Anyone over 21 were there only for the industrial side of the education. So it, it was very, very, uh, structured by that
1: time. Uh now what do we know about what it what it was like for when Mary attended the school? Um when she came, which they just would there would she sort of been just dumped in or would there have been some kind of orientation? Would she have met with the superintendent? Well
0: when when they arrived, when Mary and her parents arrived at Venton, they would have been picked up by the school's horse and buggy and taken to the school where the family and Mary were introduced to the superintendent, Robert Carruthers, and Mary would have had to take a placement test, an exam to decide what best would suit her abilities, which we all know Mary was very, very good educational wise, um, so that, you know they would have had that meeting, and also they would have been encouraged to stay a while with Mary, you know, three or four days until she got used to the setting. Um, Mary and the family would have met. The teachers, um, it, it just they would have really welcomed everybody in and, and made them very comfortable knowing that Mary would have been uh, taken care of very well. And oh, <laughs> I'm just going to say shortly after Mary, shortly after Mary came and um, all this, she came in November, and in February Robert Carruthers passed away. So she was there a very short time before um, that happened, and then Thomas F. McCune became superintendent and um he remained superintendent for 25 years which is the longest time held by any superintendent
1: okay let's uh, since we're kind of talking about the old main building let's kind of talk about that what are some of the changes that have taken place to old main over the years
0: well at the time okay at the time mary was there they would have had a smaller just a single front entrance. Um and inside the floors would have been wood floors, and we still have a lot of those in the office areas. Um very, very beautiful wood flooring. And there would have been four sets of stairs um in the building, two in the center section, and then one in each of the north and south wings, and by this time the old wooden stairs that uh, would have been originally put in were replaced with iron stairs and from the Dubuque Novelty Company. So, <laughs> of all places, another type of Dubuque. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, would, you would think something like that would have come from Indiana, Ohio, where all the big uh,
1: um, mills are well, at and stuff. Well, at least someplace that wasn't called a novelty company. I mean, <laughs> Staircase isn't yeah, exactly. all that novel. <laughs> yeah, I guess they had to
0: have a something there. But um, by the time Mary was there, all this stuff was going on. They had a new bell, which we've still got. We love to ring that bell by the way. That's a very, very good-sounding bell. And uh, they put that in in 1877. And one of the traditions there is ringing that at graduation. And today we ring it when we have tours. So, <laughs> And we like tours. But um, after Mary was gone, there was many changes to the main building. Uh, the major stuff was in 1913. Um, but before that, our auditorium was located on the third floor in the north wing. And it was capable of uh, seating over 400 people, so pretty good sized area. Um, Water would have been installed right around 1900, and along with electric lights. Um, In 1913, the staircases were all taken out except for the two in the center section of the main building, the original. Uh, iron stairs were there uh, left. The south wing didn't have any stairs but the north wing had a new set of uh, cement stairs that were installed. Um, The auditorium was moved from third floor to first floor into a brand new addition to the building um, which seated again approximately 400 people today that is about a little short of 300 because they've did some have done some uh additions there a lot of electrical work has been done you know upgrading of course <laughs> from a building that was designed for heating and uh um electrical i mean using kerosene lights and stuff so it took a lot to upgrade that um Right now, the main building, the additions—they've uh, taken out all the iron stairs. There are no original stairs in the building yet today. And They've added stair towers for fire protection and uh, school security. So, uh, building security, I should say. But a lot of a lot of changes
1: since the building was built. And. Um if someone was coming today what are the uh places that look the most like what they did when mary was there
0: the the um the wings the building itself isn't that much changed other than the removal of the the stairs the design the walls the uh, woodwork is still very much original um and they're trying to preserve all of that, of course. Um, our front porch, again, is 1913. They they extended that and made it uh, twice as wide, and they put a second story on it, which people loved when I was there because the library was on the second floor, and that's we'd sit out there on the balcony on the enclosed porch and read and stuff. It was really nice. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of original things that can still be seen to the main building, even after the Great the well, Windstorm.
1: <laughs> well, we're lucky any of it's still standing after that. But, yeah, I was, and uh, when I went on the tour with you, we got to go down in the dining room, and I thought, you know, looking at the old pictures and the new pictures of that, I mean, it was painted differently, but you could sure see the same structure of the room. I really kind of thought that was was a neat thing.
0: Oh, yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> It's a very beautiful building.
1: Okay, so the outbuildings that people see on the campus today, the what was the hospital and the dorm and that sort of thing, uh none of all of that is new building after Mary's time, correct?
0: That's correct. At the time Mary yeah. was here, everybody, students, uh teachers, uh cleaning staff lived in the main building. Uh, th- there were several that lived out in the community. Um, there were a few outbuildings, like, say, the shops uh, that housed several uh, staff. But, yeah, it, it wasn't until 1905 they added the hospital building. And that's that has remained pretty much the same. Um there was a laundry building that was built in, uh, I believe, 1880. Laundry building and a, uh engine house building with the steam heat. That was just west of the main building. And unfortunately, that stuff's gone today. They tore all that out. But in 1936 and 37, they added the girls' dorm. Um, 1928... They put in the cottage, which is when they really started putting in uh, letting the little kids come um five, six, seven years old. They have their own little cottage that they were in, and then the boys' dorm was added in
1: nineteen fifty Okay, so let's talk about one of my favorite things on the campus the tunnels uh why <laughs> did they put tunnels between the buildings?
0: Well, the first tunnel uh, was put in to connect the new industrial building, which was built in 1920, to the main building, so that students could get to that building easily during cold weather, rain, whatever. Um, and and that is that building is located where the current uh, boys' dorm is now, but. Um, The additional tunnel, the length, was added in 1928 when they put the Cottage because that tunnel serves both buildings. Um, It's the oldest tunnel that we have on the campus as far as um, what they called subway tunnels to the buildings. Uh, The other tunnel, and I don't know that Sarah got to see this one, was the the girls' dorm tunnel, the Palmer Hall Tunnel, um, which was put in in 1936 and 37 when that building was built. That's basically the two main tunnels. And in 1980, they added a tunnel from the boys' dorm to the gym, which... it's a good addition. Uh, students didn't have to go outside to go to any of the classes when it was cold or rainy. Back in my day, we'd go to the gym. We had to go outside when it was 30 below zero. and <laughs> That was fun. <laughs>
1: Well, I just do love that. Those sort of my favorite part of the tour. But okay, so let's get back to a little more serious part. What kinds of things uh, did the blind school teach in its early curriculum? You you talked about there being uh, vocational things and uh, more the educational side. What were some of the subjects taught? Well, the
0: school developed um, into what, they considered a very high grade of education. Um, It it was the same in many areas as what the schools for the seeing were, is what they called it, you know, schools for the normal uh, vision students. Um, They had, of course, the literature, um, English lit, uh, mathematics, um, algebra, trigonometry, um and science they had uh, botany um biology uh, all the everything that was being taught in the public schools um they hit a little bit more emphasis on the the higher end of the trigonometry and, and ge- geometry they had geology astronomy um very uh well-rounded curriculum that they had. And and that's why at the time when Mary came, the school was called the Iowa College for the Blind. And that's because of those few higher classes or uh, parts of the curriculum. But still at this time now, the students between 10 and 21, or 7 and 21, were only admitted into that. It wasn't um, the type where you know you you could come in at 35 and learn educational information. That that, that they didn't allow that by this time. Um, but one thing that has always been a very big part of the school was the musical department. Um, they taught, of course, you know the instrumental stuff, vocal music. Harmony um, orchestra, but they also taught theory. Um, and from the records I can see, they they really hit that pretty good. Uh, there was two classes of that. Um, so so you know anybody in the music department had that stuff. The industrial side was for anyone over twenty one. They could come and they still got their their uh daily living skills they they still learned the correct how to eat you know walking uh travel skills getting from point a to point b and beyond and they had
1: did they did they teach the the industrial students how to write with the uh the systems
0: no um No, because they found that at the time these students got over the age of 21, that they didn't have the uh, true grasp of education. Some of them they they worked with after um, that time, after uh, the 21 years of age. But from what I found, it it wasn't offered to them. I'm sure that, that if they wanted it, they were probably given that like say, after hours or something but and that's interesting because prior to eighteen sixty three the only way to to educate was by reading. Um, the teachers with vision, read the materials to the students. The students mentally grasped and and you know developed a very good memory system. Everything, you know, musical, it was all mentally done. In 1863, Braille was introduced to the school um, from St. Louis, which was introduced in the United States in 1860 at the St. Louis School, the Missouri School. Um, Braille opened up the doors to a lot of stuff because finally the students could take notes, they could go back and get those notes and read the stuff that they had. Um, they could pass notes, of course. They could retain everything and recall it like they'd never been able to do before. And, and reading uh, the Braille was easy. And I don't know how many people know what Braille is. or it, It's a dot system with uh, a cell of six dots, two wide and three high. And out of those six dots, they make all the letters of the alphabet, numbers, music notations, scientific notations, um, and it's done with uh, the different dots representing different things, different letters, um, series of dots that uh, tells the reader, hey, this, the next dots are going to be numbers, There's, I believe it's 144 uh, contractions for abbreviations, shorthand versions of uh, writing words using the Braille. But that was a huge introduction. And then, of course, you know how America is. they got to have their own system. (laughs) And in 1871, uh, Superintendent White Wyatt from uh, New York had introduced a reading system called New York Point, which was a dot system also. But his system was two dots high and four dots wide. So it it met the needs just like Braille did. Um, A lot of the students seemed to be able to read both at at first um overall new point one out for several years being the only uh one taught in many of the schools of, of the nation um but by nineteen fifteen braille was re uh pointed as uh more usable code. So since 1915, it's been Braille. Um, there now, was race, now, plant reading. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: oh, no. I was just going to say, now, in Mary's record, in the books, they always talk about Braille, but in the records, they talk about Mary learning New York Point. So would she have learned both? Um,
0: no. From what I've seen, by this time, the only thing they were teaching was New York Point, so Mary okay. would have known New York Point.
1: Okay, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I've been able able to tell, so that's always I think an an interesting thing that she'd learned this other system that that wasn't around anymore. I I'm, I think it's just amazing that they can learn to read and write, and it just I wish we could find Mary's letters because she apparently, from what I've been able to to find reference to, she had a wide correspondence with people who were in her class at school. And wouldn't that be so cool to find somebody who had a batch of Mary's letters? But I, I'm, I'm just afraid they're, that they've been destroyed by now because even if the family did happen upon it, they wouldn't realize it was... Anyone, anyone would care about, and since they'd be in New York Point, not Braille, even if they took them to somebody who read Braille, they probably wouldn't understand what they were. So, I right, think it would be yeah. really cool, though.
0: Yeah, I think so too. It really would, because she did she did communicate with uh, Thomas McCune until his death in 1907, and she did remain in contact with a lot of her uh, classmates up up till her death.
1: And I think that's something that they don't really follow up with enough uh, in either the histories or in the books is just what a transforming experience this was in Mary's life and how empowering it was for her to learn how to do all these things and to be able to communicate and have, you know, successes and friends all on her own instead of having to be, uh, dependent on uh, you know translating through people, so i I just I, I think the transforming power of the school was just so incredible, and i don 't think it gets enough credit
0: so it doesn't it doesn 't and even still today it should be should be doing more than what it is because there 's such a power there that that um, is being ignored or um, being students are being pushed away from it, and that's that 's not right.
1: I I think you're right, um, but we, we, we'll come back to that if we have time because I want to talk about some more <laughs> of the history stuff first. Okay, so um, let's talk just a little bit more about the vocational training at the school because they were actually training people to have careers. I mean, it wasn't like they were coming here for just this neat little thing and then they'd go home and be able to have a hobby. They were actually trying to train people to have jobs afterwards. So what were some of the things they were training them?
0: yeah they they taught very good jobs um broom making was a very big broom and brush making um hammock tying fly net making um rug weaving piano tuning uh, a lot of things that they could take back to their home community and and create a business with. Uh, the ladies knitting, sewing, and sewing the school-taught sewing machine, which at the time was new, a new thing, and that's one thing that Mary knew was uh, using both the old-fashioned hand sewing and the new machine sewing, um, knitting, well, I, crocheting. I...
1: Yeah, I could totally see her learning the treadle machine because you can just—I I love treadles myself—and you can just, so if you get it going good, it's just like it's a part of you. I could totally see somebody—you know—you'd have to have help pinning things together, but actually running the machine that should be no problem. You just feel it, it, it yeah. And Mary—and they actually talked that Mary, when she went back home to Dismet, did make hammocks and fly nets so that was one thing that i was very excited to see at your museum was that you had examples of those made by other students so that would have been you know exactly what hers looked like so that exactly.
0: was exactly cool. yep <clears throat> yep and one thing they taught too was the, the chair, uh, chair caning um boy wouldn't you love to be able to do that today <laughs> all these people actually these old, my brother.
1: My brother can came beautifully, and I, I was supposed to learn at the same time, but it is just not my skill. But his was very impressive. I like that.
0: Yeah, I think it's very neat, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: now, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the extracurricular activities. You talked about how music was important, but you guys were actually in competitions. There was a record made. There was lots of stuff going on for the school over the years.
0: Right. Well, at first, you know, music was part of the curriculum. It wasn't an uh, extracurricular thing. Um, It was part of the educational system, which it still is to some extent in schools. But um, we were the first school in the nation to have a marching band, all blind uh, marching band, and that was in 1958. Um, The school... Wrestling. We participated against all the local school districts and in later years uh, traveled to states in the Midwest to comp to compete against other blind students. Many of our wrestlers went on to be state champions in Iowa. We did, yes, uh, I tack. Yeah, I've heard
1: a lot of the wrest. No, I was just gonna say I had heard a lot about the wrestling program just from the the older coaches when I was out working in the school systems that that they still have a lot of respect for the wrestlers from the School for the Blind that you guys were just had an awesome reputation in that.
0: Oh yeah, yep, students, and that's one of the big differences of being at, at a school like the Iowa Braille School. Because in the public schools, you are blind. You There are things that they don't think you can do and you aren't given the chance to do. But at the school, there is no blindness. Everybody's on the same playing field. You get equal chance and you learn just like the person next to you do, does. Um, it, it's It's... <laughs> Very, very well, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but it, it's it's really neat to see somebody coming from the public school system into the school and seeing the, the huge change in their abilities. Um, don't get to see that anymore. But while I was there, it, it was very much seen... Um, the running track—that's um, one thing that we get to do. Had to do um, compete against other states. We we ran all the same events that they do in the public schools. Um, the blind ran al- alone on the short distances. Um, they ran with a wire, and you know that's just something you can't do on the public school tracks because it takes too long to get the wires in place and stuff. And And then the tandem running for the longer events. So The uh, visually impaired blind student, (laughs) they could see that they were legally blind, were the guides, but the blind had to set the pace and everything. So that that really opened up the doors to them. Swimming, we did the same thing, competed against other states, um, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Indiana. It was a lot of fun. Kansas. But um, the the musical part of it, students competed in contests in the state and na- nationally, um, and they won a lot of a lot of stuff. The marching band I, I hit on earlier there in 1958. In 1960, well, in 58 they marched in the Lions National Convention, and then in nineteen sixty in New York they were marching in the New York Lions National Convention and playing seventy six trombones. Well Meredith Wilson heard that and you know he was from Mason City and on his way back through Iowa they happened to see the Iowa School for the Blind and he stopped in and uh talked with the students, gave them a uh, impromptu concert and stuff. So they did get a lot of recognition on stuff. That was really neat. And they made, like you said earlier, they made a music uh, record. And I believe it was 1966 or 68 that they did that. So it, it, the music was a big, big part of the school also. And by this time, the industrial park had uh, gone away. Piano tuning um just wasn't done that was taken over other places so the school kind of got turned away from the, the industrial part of it but music was still a big thing
1: so the school for the blind is no longer a residential school why the change well that that's
0: kind of a controversial thing because A lot of people wanted it to remain a residential school. There was a committee, state committee met and worked through all kinds of uh, proposals, heard from a lot of people that wanted that school to remain uh, residential. But the governing body decided, you know, that, that, hey, parents want to keep their kids at home, keep them in the school districts. We don't think we need to do this. They, they had started turning students from the school back to their school districts, and they had achieved a student population of five students. So you know, but this time, what do we need to have a school for five students? Let's let's just close the residential thing and put them in their public schools. But there were a lot of people that wanted to come to the school but weren't allowed. So that that's what happened to that. It's all politics and leadership issues.
1: So tell us about the current status of the building today.
0: Well, today, since there's no students on campus, it's still used for teaching. Um, teachers have those, those in this district have their offices there. Um, it's a resource center. The library is still used. It sends out books to the state, but the campus now is shared with ameriCorps they uh have two hundred and fifty students there uh three times a year. I think it is for six weeks um that that this system is what's really keeping the school along, keeping it alive. Because through the efforts of leasing stuff to the AmeriCorps program right now, they're paying for the uh, utilities, paying for the the work that needs to be done to maintain the buildings. It's just basically keeping it alive. And they still bring in students from across the state for weekend events, um, cooking weekends, uh, um, science weekends, and then there's a summer camps during the summer that that, uh, kids come and stay on campus for a week at a time.
1: And there's also a museum as part of the the old main building.
0: Yes. Well, (laughs) right now we don't have access to it due to the wind damage. They're repairing all that. But we do have a sampling of a lot of history stuff from 1800s clear to present um and we're still finding more uh and <laughs> it's hard to believe but the campus has stuff a lot of hiding places in the campus that uh, things could be pushed away into and um once the roof is repaired we want to invite people to come see it come visit us come see the stuff that we have to display learn about mary learn about the school <laughs> That's what we really like to do is, is uh, welcome people in and, and show them the place.
1: Well, since we, we kind of mentioned it there, why don't you tell us about losing the roof?
0: Well, uh, July eleventh of two thousand eleven, so we had that derecho come through, uh, started in Tama County, come across Benton County. Um, You know, and this wasn't just a a typical windstorm. It was winds of in excess of 130 miles an hour, and it wasn't just a gust and go. It was prolonged wind at, you know, anywhere from 100 to 140 miles an hour for 15, 20 minutes, and then gradually decreasing. That took off the north and the south wings roof of the school, um, damaged windows, and they had just registered, just had kids come on campus for a, a week-long um, summer camp, just started. The next day they had to send them home because they couldn't have the buildings being used. But uh, and there was not a building on campus that wasn't damaged. Uh, roofs were blown off. Uh, one garden. Shed was picked up and thrown through the roof of the cottage building. Um, Over 200 trees gone from the campus. It just was. We're lucky to be even replacing it. Was well over uh, four million dollars worth of damage that's been done, and uh, the board of regents and the state have allowed us to repair it all. And that's what's going on now. yeah, that that was quite yes, a today.
1: That's the best thing I have ever heard that the Board of Regents ever did was that they allowed you guys to repair, repair the roof. I was really surprised and very gratified, and they owe we owe them a thank you because uh, they could easily have said, "Well, that's it." And well, yeah,
0: because that's right at the time when they were closing everything down. You know that that uh, they could have said, "Nope, we're we're just going to shut the campus down and um, just see what happens." Because once they do that, it, it goes to the state legislature. What what's the state want to do with everything? That's as long as we keep it going, we're all right.
1: So um, then, after a couple of days, after the straight line winds, winds that took off the roof, then there was a downpour of rain, which added to the problem.
0: Um, yeah, well, we're yeah. we're lucky that that the building itself was very well designed. Um, even with the roof off, there was some protection because the attic floors were concrete. So water from a normal rain would have would have seeped through. But like you said, we had those torrential downpours. I don't remember how much rain it was, but it was you know five, six, seven inches of rain at a time that that just torrentially poured through the buildings. Um, did a lot of plaster and ceiling damage. Um got into some records, but we think we've got all that pretty much taken care of. Uh it, it's
1: I been a lot. I good am record. all for I am all for cement caps. It saved you guys. It saved the old Capitol building when the idiot set the dome on fire. I think there should <laughs> yeah. be a comeback of cement caps in buildings because they seem to be so. good safety stretches. That's right. All right. (laughs) So right now you're kind of closed down because they actually are replacing those roofs even as we speak. So how's that coming along?
0: Well, it's been slow. They found damage that wasn't – the wind damage may have helped us preserve the building because over the years the work that has been done – tuck-pointing the way the building was designed, they couldn't get to the top rows of the stone. The building was made of limestone and concrete, and it just, they couldn't get to it. Well, those all decayed, and the windstorm blew it all off, and it's been a fight to get it replaced, get it done in a timely manner, because that was beyond what they had planned for repairing But the work was supposed to have been done by now, but with all that coming into play, uh, right now the proposed finish date is March, Um, unless something else is found. But they're coming along really good on the central portion of the building. They've got it uh, back in place. They're putting on what looks like original slate. So, and that's what the building would have had: with slate roof. Um, but this stuff is a rubberized or a uh, man-made. Oh yeah, I know stuff. what you're
1: talking about. That that <laughs> you, you see it, and it, it's it's molded to look like the slate. I've seen that. That's supposed to be good stuff.
0: Yes. Okay. Stuff, well, I'm a long time.
1: Yeah, so I'm glad to to hear that's coming along. And um, in the meantime, kind of access to some areas is limited, but but the care work needs to be done, and I'm glad to hear it is being done. Um, So let's – we've got just about five minutes left. I tell you, these hours go quick. I think I will have to have you back to talk about some of the other stuff. But during this last five minutes – Let's kind of talk about the Mary Ingalls Society and what that is, how people can join, and sort of what your your plans are for that.
0: Well, Mary Ingalls Society began a year ago. We we started with uh, getting the interest of people, knowing that Mary attended the college, because a lot of people, they they read the books, but they didn't know that this was the place that she went to. So we've done a great job of getting that involved. Um, we've got a good core group of people putting a lot of stuff together, and we do Mary Engle's presentations as far as tours. We Come in and tell you the history of what was there, like when Mary was there. Um, we are working on a big project for next year. We hope this all comes together the first week in, in August is the tentative date for our Mary Ingalls pageant where we're going to have a play uh, presentation uh, two nights. And we hope that everybody who goes to these Mary Ingalls or Laura Ingalls uh, events will come to us and, and just want to see it because we think it's really great to to add Mary to the group too. Um very
1: well. That's just. Very hard I'm just so excited! It, it, it was the first weekend in August because that is right near my birthday. So you're just throwing me a big birthday party. It sounds like. All right. I will definitely <laughs> have to be there for that. Yes, you will.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> people can get involved. We we want people to get involved, support, help support us. Um, become a member of the group uh, for donations of twenty dollars or more. Um, sent to the Mary Engle Society. Um, it's <laughs> the address just went out of my mind. You can send the stuff to to the Braille School in care of the Mary Engle Society. Um, it's 102 G Avenue in Benton. Um, this so much stuff that we want to do and and really open up the doors to people to come, get involved. Um, We are an official Ingalls site now, so that's very interesting, very, very uh, exciting. Um, I think that will help generate a lot of interest. But uh, just want to get people involved and and knowing what's going on.
1: Well, I, I hope so, and we'll have to have you come back on the show and talk about it when we got the plans a little more firmly in place, and mm-hmm. uh, and we can talk a little bit more about some of the, the educational issues, too, because I think it's something people should be aware of, and I think a lot of them who aren't involved in education directly aren't. Uh, I think a lot of them who aren't involved directly don't know about those the issues. So we will have to talk about both that and Mary a little bit more. So oh, yeah. thank you for yeah. coming on the show. Uh, I'm so glad that there is somebody as interested in preserving the history of the school as you are. Um, a few years ago, I was thinking about trying to put together – um, an article about the history of the school for uh, the annuals of Iowa, which is a, a history publication here in the state. And I was worried that there wouldn't be enough information. And having talked to you and seen some of the records, you guys, it's like, no, it's the opposite problem. You guys got a ton of stuff. and it, it would yeah. take a long time to put it together.
0: But, yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> so that is good though it's much better to have the problem of having too much stuff than not enough and uh, i think it's it's so great that you guys have got the society going and i think everybody will want to join and uh like your page on facebook which if you have trouble finding is liked off of my Trendlebed tales page and i hope that in um, a year we will all be talking about what a great experience we had at the first annual Mary Ingalls Pageant, and how we're going to do it again next year.
0: Exactly. So, was
1: there was there anything else that uh, you you wanted to get into in the last minute here before we end up? Well, or have we hit
0: everything? I think we've hit everything. I just want to thank you for allowing me to come on here and and put the word out, and and hopefully we can generate interest and get people to call in and visit our web pages. Send us uh information. If you have questions, comments, you can email it. Uh my email address is on the web
1: page. So I look forward to hearing from people. All right. Well we will definitely have you back. Thanks for coming on, Robert, and uh we will catch you next time. And right, everybody well, else? You. Everybody else, we've got uh, a couple more episodes planned for October that look really good. One that is directly Laura connected, and one which is another historical topic that I think you're really going to enjoy. And we've got a pretty fun topic for the Travel Times, too. So stick around and join us again another time for Trundle Bed Tales.